Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning, Contrast Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It's good to have you guys here. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I got to share this a little bit in the first service, and I'm excited to share this again. Uh, as you guys are going through the book of James, what an incredible book to dive into. It's such a practical book. It's a challenging book. It's a convicting book. Uh, and I believe today, as we open up this uh, chapter two, we kind of go into this. I believe that if we present our hearts uh, with fertile soil, receptive to the word, I know we can walk out different than the way we came in. Before I dive in too far, I just want to give a quick honor to Trey and his team. I just have been feeling the love since I walked in. I just love your team and the culture you guys have established here. Uh, I've gotten to know Adam and Hannah Baltz and by proxy the Gilmore crew uh, because uh, Hannah and Adam lived in Michigan with me for a long time. And uh, what's been cool is that over that time, it was kind of the dream and the inception and the prayerful uh, sewing of what Contrast Church is today. So to remember conversations years back around a dinner table of like, yeah, we're planning to plan a church. We're in this uh, uh, program of getting launched. And these things, like this was all just dreams, prayers, thoughts, and I'm sure sleepless nights that uh, accumulate to here and by God's grace here we are. And so what an incredible testament of God's faithfulness. Uh, And for all of you to be here, I want you guys to know you are answered prayer and a part of something that God is doing so intentionally in Columbus. You're not here on accident. You don't, you may maybe felt like you wandered in, but you didn't. Like God is intentionally drawing people to this church for this community for this time. And it is, uh, a labor of love and prayer that God is here. So, Trey, thank you so much for inviting me and uh, to the team that uh, has been so loving. So, very excited. A little introduction about me. I'll make it very brief. My name is Tyler Green. I am from the north, <laughs> from Michigan. I do come in peace and uh, am here to make no enemies. I'm here for Jesus, not football debates. Um, but... Uh, I'm excited to be here because uh, my main vocation is next-gen ministry. So I oversee everything young adult, youth, and children at my church, which is in a suburb of Detroit, about 20 minutes north of the city, 30 minutes with bad traffic, um, in a suburb of Detroit. And uh, I have the honor, I've been there for seven years now and love it. It's been such a dream to do that. But before I was a pastor vocationally, I actually spent my four years of college, kind of end of my high school life, uh, as an apprentice to an evangelist, uh, and we would travel abroad and preach throughout Peru. And so I spent a lot of my college breaks um, fundraising and then going to uh, Peru to preach at pastor's conferences. I would lead like uh, VBSs in the middle of the jungle. Like we would be paddling down the Amazon and then just like run a VBS for uh, in, uh, communities that we were spreading the gospel to. It was actually pretty awesome. There would be days I would be literally preaching and have to carry like a little shovel and like kill snakes that were trying to bite my ankle and stuff. It's great. So thankful for not that here. Um, but so I did that for four years. And so uh, it's cool to see how God works. He just kind of takes us all over. So I never thought I'd be in Columbus. 
just kidding. No, it's, it's great to be here. So it's an honor uh, to share. I, am, uh, I did my education at Oral Roberts University. Uh, so for those of you, if you follow college baseball, uh, they are in the final eight. They upset TCU, and they play again today. Very excited. Uh, Jesus is a baseball fan and is getting us to the College Baseball World Series against all these pagan schools, <laughs> godless universities. No, uh, so it's really cool to see them kind of on the, on the national stage. Um, ORU, and in, even my background a little bit, does come from kind of a Pentecostal background. And so uh, I was uh, contemplating bringing my like, flags and tambourines during worship, left them in the car, thought about it in between services, but uh, conveniently left those just so we can uh, kind of all be on the same page. But no, I... On top of that, that was kind of my later teen in college and then uh, into life, but my, really my foundational faith was developed through the Baptist tradition. And so uh, what you find today is kind of this interesting tension of um, conservative Baptist background, a little more uh, having a good time, Pentecostal, whatever you want to call that. Uh, and so here I am today. So we'll uh, prayerfully hope that uh, as I teach today that it is just... God speaking and not any of my uh, goofy Pentecostal background. So pray for me. Let's get into the text here. The book of James uh, is such an interesting book. I know you guys have probably recapped it over the last few weeks, but I just want to quickly highlight the book's intention. James is the brother of Jesus, and he's writing a book to Christians who have been scattered across the known world at that time. And zooming in on this situation at hand, the Christians are in the infancy stage of the church. It is uh, small pockets. It's um, a lot of oppression from uh, ancient Rome and other uh, kind of like pagan uh, ideology around them. And there's a lot of pressure on them trying to kind of stomp them out. And so in these faith communities, they would be... um, strengthened by the apostles' teaching. But because of this oppression on them, they had to scatter. And so they don't have the apostles directly overseeing them. So James writes this letter to help sharpen, encourage, and challenge the church to live a life that models the inward transformed work and walk it out into the world that they see around them. It's a, that's why James is so important. It challenges the believer. And so before I go too much further into my specific point, I actually want to look at this, um, this uh, chart that I found that was really helpful in helping uh, kind of take my vision down exactly where we're going today. So this is kind of a big, broad picture of the book of James. And so up to this point, you've heard teachings on the trials and temptations, faith and testings, but now we're zooming into this idea of the word meeting our works, that what we read in the Bible and the work of God in our life should eventually be fruitful and walk out in terms of our actions, lifestyle, decision-making, how we conduct ourselves in in the world. Those two things should work together. And then specifically, we're going to look at the idea of favoritism, partiality, prejudice, um, and not walking in that, and how God feels about uh, showing favoritism or prejudice, uh, and really just how much it really bothers him. So we're going to look at that, and then specifically how this outer life we live should be a reflection of the inner work that has happened. Because if an inner work has happened and the outer life doesn't display it, there's a disconnect. There's somewhere the interruption, the signal has gotten lost. 
So what I'm going to implore for you today is to evaluate your heart, that as we go through the word, that you wouldn't just let it kind of wash over you, that you would internalize it and let it, uh, let it reach your heart, whatever condition it's in today. There's no judgment about that. We all walk in with different levels of heart junk. And so today I'm going to ask that the, that the word would challenge that and that we're going to go into a time of reflection at the end to really present then our heart to the Lord as our offering for him to renew and restore. And then all of this is then to then be taken practically and walk it out in our day-to-day lives. So that's the book of James kind of in broad strokes. Now let's zoom in to James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13. This passage is highlighting a unique situation that is happening in a church that James is addressing. And that is the favoritism or the prejudice displayed in the social economic system of wealth in this community. This situation is is, uh, highlighting the rich being favored and the poor kind of being scooted to the side, being told to sit in the back, don't make noise, like better seen, not heard type of situation. That's what James is showing us here. Now, we see this in one instance. I'm sure in our lives today, whether it's Columbus or the church abroad, favoritism, partiality takes a lot of different shapes and sizes. It's not just wealth. It can be race. It can be social economic background. It can be uh, what college football team you root for. It can be, uh, you know, a million different things. At the end of the day... There is a heart that God wants to instill in us, and it is our job to uh, present ourselves ready for that transformation so that when we walk out of these doors and we go into your schools, into your workplace, into your lives, that it's a life that looks like Jesus, one that is full of love and full of um, grace and mercy. So what I'm going to do is kind of go down... uh, kind of chunk by chunk. And so I'd ask if you have a Bible or you're taking notes, just kind of highlight these passages so you can go back and and meditate on them this week. The first one I'm going to look at is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to loosely title this little section, The Rebuke of Partiality. The Rebuke of Partiality. The beauty of James, James is like a spiritual dad in a way, uh, is as we are celebrating Father's Day, what a good dad does is that he brings healthy discipline. When a child gets out of line, there's a way that a father shows love by bringing them back into proper alignment with behavior, with, um, with their life. And so James is bringing a rebuke to this church because they've gotten just off a of center. They're starting to kind of drift into a bad uh, ideology. So we see this moment and we see James imploring them to walk in a life that models the heart of God and the atmosphere of heaven. And that is against favoritism and showing equity towards everybody. There's a verse in Psalm 96, verse 10. It says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the people with equity. Here's what this word means uh, biblically. It means impartiality, fairness in determination of conflicting claims, the giving or desiring to give to each man his due according to reason and the law of God to man. 
God is no respecter of persons. In this, uh, in the, in the uh, word partiality, translated into the Greek, there's actually uh, a definition that's so interesting. It means to pay no respect to a face. So God is not interested in the outward expression, even necessarily at first glance at your behavior. He's interested on your intention and your heart because from that comes everything. And the Bible calls it the wellspring of life. Everything you do, say, intend to do, how you conduct yourself stems from your heart. And so this idea of um, passing judgment is assuming a role that was never meant to be ours. It's God's. And so God's heart shows no partiality. He shows complete sovereign fairness to everybody. And he does it in a way that only God can, even in ways that we don't understand. And that's kind of the tough pill to swallow when it comes to God, is that he does it in his terms. Uh, that's a whole other sermon and conversation to get into. But the idea that God does it his way, but he does it with justice and mercy, with grace and uh, a firm, strong hand. He does these things in attention that, in a way that we can only trust that God knows is best. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 20, it says, For the Lord your God is God, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take oaths in his name. This is God giving clear instruction to the nation of Israel at their inception. Upon coming out of Egypt, they needed to be told, hey, this is the Father's heart. Here's how I want you to establish your community with impartiality and love towards the people around you. In that way, the Bible calls them a beacon of light, a city on a hill. There is this model that God wants to impart into his church that if we walk this out with, uh, with the heart of Jesus, the world takes notice. And that's the whole goal, right? We're not meant to be an exclusive Christian club kind of hidden away in our buildings. We are meant to be charged, to be renewed, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit, and then walk this out in so that the world would take notice of the Christ in you. And so James is imploring us to be reflective of a heart that is contaminated with prejudice or uh, partiality or favoritism. You see, we're not always aware. I don't know if, if I'm, maybe I'm the only one in the room that gets this way, but we kind of, I find myself um, almost accidentally showing favoritism or prejudice, and I don't mean to. It's almost like inadvertently I ended up there because of maybe it's a lifestyle, the, the culture you were brought up in. Maybe it's a circumstance that happened to you as a kid that formed something in your mind. Or maybe it's your parents like, that really drove this thought in your mind. Whatever it is, we kind of end up at these uh, preconceived notions even without consciously choosing them. And the only way to undo that is to present it to God and then have him do an assessment with us. God, where's where my heart at? Why am I feeling so tensioned towards this person or these people or this demographic or this whatever it might be? It can be a convicting thing, and it takes a humility 
to understand and to present our heart to God in that way because correction from God doesn't always feel good. Discipline isn't fun, but it's essential to being more like him. So what he does is that he changes our perspective, and that takes us to James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And I'm going to softly label this our perspective versus God's. Our perspective versus God's. In here, James paints a picture of a rich man walking in and a poor man walking in. And the favor that the rich man gets in the kind of disrespect or kind of the casting aside of the poor man. In God's upside-down economy, in the kingdom of God, God is so intentional towards using the idea of the poor to represent the most faithful. Actually, we see it in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 3 and verse 5. It says, the meek shall inherit the earth, and the poor will possess the kingdom of heaven. Now, this isn't just about a number in your bank account. This isn't just about when you hit X amount of wealth. You are now bad. You will not pass through the eye of the needle, like the Bible says. It, um, it's more of a posture of your heart. It's the love of money. And if they're talking about it in the book of James and even before that, clearly this is a human issue. It's not just an America right now situation or a suburban cultural issue. It is a human issue that has been going on for uh, centuries. We are easily distracted by wealth, and we're easily kind of drawn to it. So I, James addresses this church and says, a rich man walked in, and essentially the senior pastor kind of was like, come on over here. Let me give you the front seat. Oh, you make how much? Oh, you're a doctor. Okay, yeah, come and sit up front. And uh, yeah, here's all the things we have. I would love to, let me get you, you got free coffee. Like you got, and they just pamper him or her because maybe there's something in it for them. We, it's our human nature. We are inherently somewhat selfish. And so if there's value to be gained from somebody, we tend to gravitate towards them. Whereas then the other side of this uh, picture that James is painting is the poor person. They come in, they don't have the gold rings. They don't have the fresh look. They don't really present themselves as being valuable to that person uh, in terms of a monetary sense. So they don't really get attention. They're just told, why don't you sit in the back? Don't make noise. Just kind of, you can hang. You know, we won't kick you out. And James addresses this as you have it completely backwards. In God's economy, faith is the currency. God loves and is moved by faith. And so what he's asking for us is to be, to be in a sense, poor in spirit, but rich in faith, in reliance on him, to be like him, to be drawn towards him. And so this flipping of perspective is so incredibly important because without it, we drift towards our natural, carnal, humanistic tendencies. And that is anything but God's perspective. I'm telling you, it's like gravity. Our humanity falls until we fight back against it with intention. You never trip and fall into being like God. And let's, let's just be honest here. You don't kind of just like meander through life and be like, oh, I'm really Christ-like today. Wow, didn't see that coming. There's a lot of intention that is required to get there. But the best part is it's not about just behavior modification. It's actually the grace of God working in you, compelling you to be like him. It's not just your striving. And that's the beauty of this relationship with God. So let's keep going. We're going to look at James now 8 through 11. 
And this is what I would call the royal law or the law of love being broken. And I want to park here for just a second because there's a really compelling passage in here that James is calling back to Jesus who is calling back to the Old Testament. And it paints this beautiful big picture that is God's heart. And I want us to understand it. So I want us to zoom in at verse 8 here for a second. It says, but if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So I'm sure if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've heard the phrase, do unto others as you would have done unto you, love your neighbor as yourself, like this golden rule thing. This isn't, James didn't make this up. He's quoting Jesus, who is quoting an Old Testament scripture. So in Matthew chapter 22, this is Jesus sharing this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus, speaking to a predominantly Hebrew audience at that moment, is calling back to a cultural prayer called the Shema that they would pray multiple times a day. And that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this is something, again, it was the realignment of Israel's heart time and time again as they naturally drifted away uh, and and, uh, found their, their hearts longing for everything else but God. God said, I want you to pray this multiple times a day. This will recenter you, recalibrate you. Verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. As Jesus adds it all together and says, and love your neighbor as yourself, He's taking this whole idea of you have God's heart. You have this vertical relationship that is you and God. When you get that, you start to get the horizontal relationship correct. You cannot do one without the other. They are, uh, they are necessary to each other. You don't get one without the other. And so if we start to assess where our lives are at and we find ourselves being a little short, a little short-tempered, maybe a little... Um, prejudice, a little uh, disingenuous towards people, we find that that is kind of the indicator towards our heart not really being in that synced up position with the Father. And that's not to say you can't get back in. It's often just a resetting moment with the Lord that brings your heart back into that uh, living water, uh, refreshed posture. And when you get that, the relationship with people becomes so much easier. It's never easy, but it gets easier because you have the Holy Spirit leading that. The Shema is such a beautiful, powerful passage because it talks about the heart. And in the Bible, the understanding of the heart was very different than the way we understand heart. They knew it was important for physical, like it pumped blood around the body, but they also saw it as the central hub for everything that makes you, you. So I have this picture I want to show us, and this is how the ancient Hebrews would have seen the heart. They see it as your thoughts, your emotions, the physical heart itself, but then also your choices. Everything stemming from that. So when they would quote saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, they're saying, love the Lord your God with everything you have. It's interesting, even the word strength is not, in Hebrew, it's not 
the word for like physical strength, like, like bench press or something. It's actually an amplifier in a Hebrew sentence. It means very much or much more. And what's so interesting about that is that when we translate it to English, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Love the Lord, God with all your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and very much. What this is saying when it's read in its original language is intending that you love, your, love the Lord your God with every ounce of you possible. I loved our, our um, Selah prayer today, the hands down, because it, it symbolizes a total release of self. There is nothing held onto that is us. It is all before the Lord. And when we give him that, this heart of ours, as the Bible sees it, is transformed in every category. None of them are left to our own devices. Even if 1% is left to our own, it is the cracked open door for the enemy to use and manipulate. We have to give complete surrendered heart. And this is why this prayer was prayed every day. Then Jesus steps on the scene, takes this whole idea of the heart and everything being given to God and says, when you do that and you love your, uh, you love your neighbor as yourself, that is the byproduct, the fruit. One of my favorite verses or uh, chapters in the whole Bible is John 15. It talks about we being the branches and Jesus being the vine. How if we abide in him, we produce fruit. And if we're ever detached from that vine, there is nothing fruitful. Which tells me it's not just about behavior modification. If we take God completely out of the equation and say, I'm just going to be a moral person, which a lot of the world is trying to do. Anybody, all these communities with great intention and initiatives, separate from God, it's, it's good, but it doesn't produce fruit. It's not long-lasting because it doesn't have the Holy Spirit driving it. What we have is so essential as a church because without it, without God, there's no fruit to it. It doesn't last. So for us, this heart of ours is so fickle and broken and misguided sometimes. When we ask God to take our whole heart and restore it, renew it, challenge us and change us, it eliminates or it deteriorates our desire to be prejudiced, to be uh, to show favoritism, to be uh, uh, partial in humanity. I think of this when I think of the difference between heart change and behavior modification. I think of raising a child. Uh, I got to share uh, in the first service, I was talking about Adam and Hannah's children. I got to be there with my wife in the hospital the day that Elliot was born and got to hold him that day. And it was so cool because over the subsequent years, seeing them grow up. And if any of you have raised children or been around children, you know that it's not always the best answer to say, because I said so, when they're doing wrong things. Eventually, you kind of get there. I totally understand that. But especially in that toddler phase, their favorite question to ask is, why? Why, 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 why? And they do that because they're trying to get down to the, uh, the core of it. Like, why, why can't I run into the road? Why can't I eat cookies before dinner? Why can't I? And really, their whole goal is, I understand the behavior is wrong, but I'm kind of pushing up against why that rule exists. That's our human nature. We are inherently so selfish, and we make up the rules for ourselves. Sorry about that. Um, we, we want to define the terms ourselves. That was the curse from the garden. 
uh, when Eve and Adam ate the fruit, it was because they wanted to be like God, calling the shots for themselves. So here we are, saying, God, we don't want to be prejudiced. We don't want to be partial. We don't want to show favoritism. He's saying, good, let me show you why. And this is what brings us to the very end of this uh, passage in James 12 through 13, uh, 2, 12 through 13. It says, speak and act as those who will be judged by a law that uh, gives freedom. For judgment is merciless for those who have shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What transforms us is the gospel. This mercy triumphing over judgment, that is the seat we were supposed to be in and was replaced by Jesus. We all walked into this room deserving judgment and having received mercy. And none of us in this room want to be the hypocrite that then casts judgment on someone else having received eternal mercy. And so today we find ourselves in this point of saying, God, I don't know if I can do that on my own. I can be virtuous, moral, upright to a point until circumstances lead me the other way or really mess me up, whatever it might be. The only way to undo that is by a relational encounter with God, a heavenly father leading us in the right way. That Psalm 23 relationship, that he leads us by still waters in green pastures. His leading inspires us and gives us the grace to love other people. People can be really hard to love. Uh, I, I'm not going to un, uncork all of it, but uh, I have family members. My mom specifically uh, is, is gay, and um, it's been a really interesting relationship to kind of navigate um, considering you know, we don't agree. And that's in that tension, what I have found is that uh, often as the church and as Christians, we paint a broad brush over entire communities and say they chose, therefore, and we just kind of make these very big ultimatums. And in this relationship with my mom, I have found the humanity in it that her soul was made by God perfectly at one point. And there were circumstances, a horrible dad in her life, uh, toxic things that had happened to her throughout her life that caused an erosion to her understanding of God. And without getting to the human that is my mom, I would, in a sense, throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, you chose. And I think sometimes we see churches get a little too um, arrogant in that way. And what God is calling us to do and what James is imploring us to do is saying, the heart of God is to see that person. Are they walking with God yet? No. So are they going to do godly things? Of course not. What he's asking us to do is walk out a life that shows the transformation of God in us. And when another person sees it, they would be drawn to it. Every soul is drawn to it. Even the ones that are the most turned off to it. The peace the wholeness, the satisfaction, the purpose that we walk in as believers is so desirable to the world when it's modeled and lived out from a transformed heart. If it's simply trying to be behavior-modified morality, we're eventually going to fall apart. And we do. It's okay. The grace of God covers that. But in this, God will change us. He loves an open, receptive heart. 
there's this verse in Psalm 51, verse 17. It's in the Amplified. It says, my only sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, broken with sorrow for sin and thoroughly repentant. Such, O God, you will not despise. In summary of it, it's basically saying our best gift we can give God is our heart, but a heart that is ready to be changed by his hand. It's a heart that we cannot define on our own terms because our own terms are simply just not good. They're not good enough, at least, in terms of God. So what he's asking for is a heart ready to be changed by his hand. And in that transformation, we will see our uh, disposition and our uh, outlook of people change as a byproduct. I don't know if I have enough words to ever convince you to behaviorally change how you view people. But an encounter with the love of God and the mercy that was displayed for your soul is the exact thing that can change your life. So here's what I'm going to do. We're going to wind down here and go into a moment of reflection. And here's what I'm going to ask. I know you have Father's Day plans or maybe you have afternoon lunch reservations, things like that coming up. I'm just going to ask for the next few minutes that you slow down and you just ask the Holy Spirit for an assessment of your heart. And say, God, where, how, how am I doing? Where am I at right now? What does my heart look like? Where's the, what part have I not given you yet? And in, that, in this reflection time, as we prepare to take, the, uh, take communion and to pray and reflect, that you would use this time to surrender your heart to the Lord. And I know that in that, we will walk out of this place anew and ready to see the world impacted for the kingdom. So why don't we pray? God, we're just so thankful for your grace your mercy that is unending, your grace that has no bound, your arms of love never run short. Lord, I pray for each of us in this room that you would challenge us, convict us, and then ultimately lovingly lead us to a place of repentance and a place of newness of heart. Lord, I pray that Contrast Church and every heart represented in it would be one made like Jesus. And that through those hearts, there would be an outpouring, a a reaping of the harvest of souls longing for reconnection to the Heavenly Father. Lord, we love you. Our hearts are yours. Do the work that must be done. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit Contrast.Church.